Hello all, and a massive welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that each week seeks out the more unfamiliar and usually more obscure crimes, both solved and unsolved, to recount from the shores of the UK. As ever, I'm your host Paul, the creator, host, and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, and you guys are the enthusiasts that I look forward to joining me each week. I do hope this episode finds you all well and having a good summer, or is it getting too hot by now? because you've got to go to work in it, and you can't sleep up a night because of it. We're never content us lot, are we? Never at all. Now, I never really stop long enough, and I'm constantly busy, so as well as plotting out the episodes to make up the final quarter of this series, I'm currently writing the next Patreon episode, all ready for 1st of September. If anyone does fancy the current extra episodes of the show that are available as a supporter of the show, then head on over to Patreon and look up the True Crime Enthusiast there, like my latest kind supporters, Fiona O'Sullivan, Heather Powell, Hannes Olsen, Kate Foss, Zoe Liddle, Susan West and El Camille Anderson have all done. Thanks so much for your kind support guys, it means the world and it helps make the show. If anyone else is interested in supporting the show like these folks, for less than a loaf of bread costs each month, then you can get things sent to you, or you can just catch up with an extra 7 bonus episodes to date, with a fresh one coming on the 1st of each month, the next one out on the 1st of September. The link will as ever be alongside the social media links in the episode show notes for this week. Also cheers for the constant likes, the shares and the reviews of the show, both the good and the bad ones. As I've said many times before, I prefer honesty, it's all good, and if that's how you feel, then it gives me things to take on board and strive to improve, so it's all good and very welcomed. Now I have a couple of podcast recommendations this week, beginning with the Brit Pod Scene podcast. This is a bit of an amalgamation of different hosts, all who've collectively created the Brit Pod Scene Network that I'm very pleased to say the True Crime Enthusiast podcast is a part of. There's a right mix of stuff on there. It's not just true crime. It ranges from casual wild birds to Star Trek through comedy, film, TV stuff, music, all sorts for everyone on there. And just recently, I had the opportunity to have a chat with one of the hosts about my own show, which made it onto Britpod Scene's latest episode, which was released just earlier this week. So if you want to hear me having a chat about creating the show, getting a bit tongue-tied and joking about myself being a murderer and how to commit the perfect murder, head on over there and check out the latest episode of Britpod Scene. I'm also pleased this week to bring the promo for a brand new true crime podcast, because after all, there are only a few true crime podcasts in existence of course, aren't there? But I get the feeling this is going to be one of the better ones. It's called Seeing Red and it features a mix of all sorts of cases from the UK, not just Murder of the Week. It's going to have frauds, con men, thefts, all sorts of things like that, and the debut episode has just dropped this week also. The hosts are Bethan and Mark, who are now just about to introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. And we are the hosts of a new UK true crime podcast, Seeing Red. We're planning to bring you an episode of Seeing Red every Wednesday and we'll be taking it in turns to tell each other about a crime. The cases we're going to talk about will be from the UK. We'll be covering scams, robberies, murders, and everything in between. Some cases will be solved, but some will be mysteries, and we hope you'll enjoy listening to us discussing our theories on these. So, let's tell you a little bit about us. We've known each other for about five years, and we absolutely love true crime. So we thought the next logical step for us would be a true crime podcast. 
You can find Seeing Red on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. And why not follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter to join a discussion thread about the case. Just search for Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast. Cheers for that both. Looking forward to hearing much more from you. Another one there for the list with a link to Seeing Red in my show notes this week. Before we crack on with this week's episode, I'd like to remind as well that I'm always looking out for suggestions for cases to cover on the show, and for any of you guys out there who fancy researching and writing a case for a future episode, then I'm all ears. I'm looking to do another listener episode soon, and I've already heard from several who expressed an interest in being part of this who are researching cases that they suggested, so as soon as I get them, the episode will follow shortly, as these are always ones that I enjoy doing. So that's hopefully in a few weeks. This week on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I've got two tales for you, and the episode this week has been entitled The Female of the Species. So I'm pretty sure you can hazard a guess why if you know the song, which is a song that I can't stand to be honest. I never liked it when it first came out in the late 90s. And it also reminds me of the television programme Cold Feet, a game which I could never be bothered with. I never had any time for it whatsoever. Now most of the time on the show, the cases dealt with in episodes tend to have a male perpetrator. Now that's not me being sexist in any way, looking for the obscure and unfamiliar cases that I do for the show, purely committed by blokes. It just seems to be blokes that do the most murdering. Now I want to say that's a true statistic, but how can you be sure? I'm sure that there are possibly as many women out there who kill abusive partners in cases that don't even make it past the local newspapers to where it happens, because it's simply a domestic murder. To create a narrative for an episode though, there's got to be a bit of backstory and a draw as well for a case. Especially for myself, I've shied away from better known cases of female killers such as Hindley or Joanna Dennehy or Rose West of course because not only are they far too well known for the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, several other true crime podcasts have already covered their cases, and so I'm not bringing anything new to the table by doing so. I have instead this week chosen two unfamiliar and obscure cases, one from the 1990s and one further back from the start of the 1980s, that seem to support the lyrics deadlier than the male. Please be advised that this week's episode does contain descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so discretion is advised, guys. With that in mind, please get comfy and join the true crime enthusiast as this week we look back first at the case of René Sampat. Tottenham driving instructor Ansel Marshall was renowned as a calm character who took everything in his stride who's friendly and pleasant, but always focused upon the job in hand. 28-year-old Ansel firmly believed in having a patient manner and being firm but encouraging with students, so when their confidence grew, then their driving skills would develop naturally. He prided himself on never even losing his rag with the most erratic of pupils. With these, he'd simply and calmly taken control of the vehicle and avoided any accidents. He was regarded by fellow instructors that he worked with as an all-round great instructor who'd helped countless young drivers pass their test over the years and was nothing short of a complete professional. So Ansel thought nothing except business as usual when a glamorous 20-something brunette named René Sampat turned up at his driving school one day in 1985, having enrolled for a series of driving lessons. 
Ansel simply thought that he was about to teach his latest pupil how to successfully drive. When 28-year-old René got into the driver's seat at the beginning of her first lesson, Ansel gave no extra thought to the friendly smile that she had on her face, and nor did he think twice about the deliberate and lingering flash of her thigh that René provided as her skirt rode up while she was altering her position. During driving lessons, Ansel made it a strict rule not to talk too much to his pupils, fearing that it might distract them from their concentration on the road. Now I don't know about yourselves, but I found it quite helpful and relaxing to do this when I learned to drive, having a bit of inane chit-chat. I'm sure it does help for some people. Renee was one of these. She kept asking him questions all throughout that first lesson, however, but she kept turning to talk to Ansel in the passenger seat rather than keep her eyes on the road. He politely requested her to please keep your eyes on the road several times and began to notice that each time they were stopped at a road junction or traffic lights, René would simply turn and smile in his direction. Put it down to nerves or some people are just smiley people like that, but by the time René had pulled up at the end of that first lesson, Ansel felt there was a bit of a strange atmosphere. When they got out of the car at the end of the lesson, René had engaged him in conversation, and during this she kept grabbing his hand and placing it in both of hers. Ansel was a lay preacher in his spare time at the Seventh Day Baptist Church in Tottenham's Victoria Road, and he preferred to always think the best of people, but it crossed his mind that he wasn't sure if René was making a pass at him, or was just an expressively warm person being over-grateful for a successful driving lesson. As he watched her leave, he decided that he was imagining this, kicked himself up the arse and thought no more of it. The following week, Renee turned up again for a lesson, but this time the way she was dressed, she looked more like she was off to a film premiere rather than practising three-point turns down some industrial estate. She had on so much jewellery that Mr T would struggle to wear it, and a pair of earrings so massive that it looked like she had three heads and Ansel worried that it would interfere with the driving capabilities. The lesson went pretty much the same as the first lesson had gone, constant chatter and turning to talk instead of looking straight ahead, the permanent smile when she looked at him, and Ansel was by this time finally coming around to the realisation that René had other things on her mind apart from driving. The realisation hit home without a shadow of a doubt when a few minutes before the end of the lesson, René fondled Ansel intimately, lost control of the car for a moment and almost had a serious collision. By the end of the lesson back at the driving centre, Ansel told René as politely as possible that it would be better if she was taught by another instructor and he left it at that, presuming that that would be the end of his association with René Sampat. He couldn't have been more wrong, it was just the beginning. One Sunday a few weeks later, as Ansel was showing members of the Seventh-day congregation to their seats before service, he was taken aback to see René turn up accompanied by three of her younger children. Despite this, he was calm and courteous towards her, and he wasn't to know that René had joined the Seventh-day Baptist Church, despite already being a committed Muslim. He was soon to begin to discover why she had. 
One evening, Ansel received a telephone call from one of his fellow preachers telling him that Rene had contacted the church asking that Ansel visit her at home to counsel her following a serious incident that had occurred, saying she'd been attacked and raped by a stranger. She'd asked for Ansel by name, and his colleague reminded him that he had a duty of care to a member of the congregation to investigate and counsel as home counselling and visitation were part of the duties of the pastors at seventh day. So Ansel, although he was apprehensive about Gain being alone with Renee, he went around to a house in Seaford Road in Tottenham, and he listened to a story of how she had that evening been attacked and raped by a stranger. Yet mid-story, Renee would change details about the incident, and steadfast refused to report the matter to police even after Ansel offered to call them himself and stay with her while police spoke to her. Ansel left her home more puzzled than sympathetic, really, but he respected her wishes not to report the matter, and the incident was never mentioned again. Then a few months later, Ansel's home phone rang one night while he was lying in bed with his wife Jeanette, and guess who it was? This time it was Renee herself in tears, telling him that she'd once again been raped and gagged, and that she'd been left trussed up, and could Ansel come around and untie her? Ansel by now had figured out that this probably wasn't true. How did she manage to call him if she'd been left tied up, of course? But he advised her to call police instead of him, and to report the matter. Again, Renee refused to do this, and again the matter was never mentioned again. Instead, Ansel was just left feeling worried about her motives for calling him in the first place. This became extreme apprehension when the following Sunday, Ansel's fellow preachers at the church told him that Rene had again asked for him in person, following a third rape allegation, which he felt duty-bound to attend to. Within minutes of him arriving at her house, Rene burst into tears, and then tried to kiss Ansel. He immediately pulled away from her, but she then collapsed at his feet, pleading with him to go to bed with her there and then. Once again, with the patience of a saint, Ansel reminded her that he was a happily married man and to instead go to police about the rape allegations, which she again refused to do. Instead, she ignored everything he said and began making lurid and perverse suggestions about what the pair of them could do together in bed right there and then. Ansel made his excuses here and left, concerned about a growing obsession with him and a confused mental state. He decided that there was nothing he could do. He felt he couldn't go to the police about it as he would be wasting their time. And as a member of his congregation, he instead had a duty to help her. He respected her wish not to report the matter yet again, and it was left at that, yet again. But police were to find out about Renee, because shortly after this, she herself called police to her home after another alleged attack. Officers arrived to find Renee naked and still loosely tied up, coming out with some wild story about how a man had climbed in through a window and at knife point had tied her up and tried to get her, to quote her own words, to do all sorts of things to him. It seemed to the police who attended that this was a fabricated story and when after she'd been untied one of the officers suggested this as much to her, Renee immediately ran to the kitchen of the flat and attempted to stab herself. She was disarmed and calmed down when it was put to her that police had powers to remove her children from the premises for their safety 
if she continued to act so erratically. Some months later, Ansel received a disturbing telephone call from his father, who was a senior member of the same church. Renee Sampat had been to visit his father, and she'd actually pleaded with Ansel's own father to convince his son to have an affair with her. She'd go on and on about it to him, and even said that it wasn't marriage or a new life with Ansel that she wanted, she just wanted to have a sexual relationship with him. Proper banzai or what that, isn't it, eh? Now you'd nip this in the bud, wouldn't you? Enough would be enough there, and you'd have to tell her, in no uncertain terms, where to go. But instead, Ansel, for some reason, decided to do nothing. He decided that despite her obvious infatuation with him, as a servant of God, he should forgive and forget, not be any different towards Renée when he saw her in church each week, and in fact, to not encourage her or lead her on in any way, but to make an extra effort to get on with her and to keep the peace. He would come to regret that very, very dearly. Two years after they'd first met, Renée was still a regular churchgoer, and had by this time managed to ensconce her way into becoming a friend of Ansel's family. He was convinced that all that had occurred before was a thing of the past, there were no more calls about rape allegations or any inappropriate actions, innuendo or suggestion towards him, and Renée was if anything trying to show how much she was a genuine friend to the family. She was very generous and would send them all countless gifts, including a £70 overcoat for Ansel, and Ansel was that forgiving that he would now even let Renee look after his three daughters whenever his wife Jeanette was out working. Even Jeanette herself was becoming increasingly fond of Renee, and terms were so good between them all that when Jeanette's birthday came around that year, Renee managed to persuade a family friend of the Marshalls to lend her the key to their flat so she could cook a surprise meal and decorate a room as part of a surprise celebration. Lovely, eh? No, not lovely at all, because unfortunately, Rene hadn't changed one bit. It was all a facade, and her mind was still filled with the wildest and most perverse fantasies about Ansel, who she believed could bring her everlasting happiness. She would stare at him and admire him from head to toe at church functions, and she memorised every inch of him for her own sexual fantasies, yet she was content to put up a pretense in front of Jeanette, just so she could be close to him. But by the end of 1988, she'd had three years of obsessing like this, and her sexual fantasies were bordering on the dangerously obsessive. It was here that Renée decided if she couldn't have him as a secret lover, then she'd have to have him entirely to herself. Renée went on holiday to Turkey with a female friend, who was also a close friend of Ansel and his family, and it was here that she put her plan into action. She told her friend quite openly about the lust that she had for Ansel, and that if anything ever happened to Jeanette, she would marry him in a heartbeat. She also claimed that she and Ansel had previously been involved in an affair, and that she'd actually become pregnant by him, but had aborted the child. This friend was understandably shocked by this, and Renée's story and her claims were so detailed and lucid that her friend believed her. The truth of the matter was that Renée had been for so long developing this fantasy about her and Ansel, that she'd virtually begun to live in a world, in her own world of make-believe. By telling her friend this, Renée knew that her lives would be conveyed back to Jeanette, and this would cause a rift in the Marshall family, 
that she believed she could just step into. She was desperate to have Ansel for herself and to have a child with him, for aside from the imaginary marriage that she and him already had in her mind, and the wonderful house and happy family life, the one thing that would cement their love together would be having a child. Unfortunately, every single bit of this was all in her mind, and it was to come crashing down in September 1989. That month, Jeanette Marshall became pregnant with the couple's fourth child, and Ansel and the rest of their family and friends were over the moon, all except one. Renée could not accept this when the reality of what was happening dawned on her, and she looked at Jeanette's pregnancy as any wife would look upon her husband's mistress having a child by him. In Renée's mind, she believed that it should be her having Ansel's baby. She actually by now believed that she was the wife and Jeanette was the mistress, and that Ansel had unforgivably betrayed her by having a child with his own wife. Yeah, check up from the neck up needed there, I think. It wasn't long afterwards that a series of threatening and obscene poison pen letters began steadily arriving at the Marshall home. Some were signed Eric, and suggested that the child Jeanette was carrying was not Ansel's, but rather the result of an affair that Jeanette had had with the author. Each letter was poorly written in broken English, and where some would issue threats of violence against the Marshall family, Others were directed personally at Ansel and just went on to make obscene references and hurtful claims such as things that Eric had made love to Jeanette in the family home, left condoms in the toilet and insisted that Jeanette preferred him as a lover to Ansel with an example of these letters reading When you touch her body she says it feels like a snake You breath stink, you cannot kiss good so as you can tell, poor grammar and spelling, shocking really. Graffiti was also daubed on the wall of the Seventh-day Baptist Church about Eric and Jeanette, and the letters continued at a regular rate, right up until and past the birth of the Marshall's fourth child in April 1990. Each time they'd get obscene, and then shortly after the birth, one letter turned up with the ominous threat that Jeanette would not live past the baby's first birthday. The Marshalls were understandably distressed by this. I don't know if anybody listening has ever received an anonymous threatening letter like that, but I did many years ago. I knew it was from, but I could never prove it. And it does unsettle you. It's a horrible thing to happen to someone, and yet it shakes you to the core. It's quite frightening. So the Marshalls were understandably distressed by this, and still Ansel refused to report this matter to the police preferring to let it all blow over. It's likely that he harboured his suspicions about the author of the letters, for of course, they were being sent by Renee, but he never actually confronted her about them. I suppose he thought he didn't have any proof, and she continued to remain in the Marshall's social circle. Now it's unclear exactly why she still did, considering what she'd told her friend while they were on holiday, but remain she did, even to the extent then when Ansel opened an Indian takeaway meal service as a sideline to his driving school, he even hired her as a cook. You just think, what's the matter with this guy or what? In the middle of April 1991, Ansel visited Renee at her home one evening to collect a tray of food that she'd cooked for his restaurant. And Renee, who couldn't resist having the object of her obsession in her home, attempted to hug and kiss him. 
Ansel tried pushing her away, but she tried to hold him and force her tongue down his throat. Ansel finally managed to get her off him quite forcibly and left, asking her as he went, What is the matter with you? To Renee, this was humiliation like she'd never experienced before, at least in her own mind. She actually had that night no doubt whatsoever that by coming to her house that evening, Ansel was coming to profess his love for her. He wasn't just after a tray of chapatis. Rene was certain that she and Ansel would end up making love that evening. Her fantasies had just convinced her of it. And instead, he'd rejected her in the coldest possible way. There and then, she didn't just snap back to reality and realise just how obsessive she was being and to give it all up. She instead decided that to have Ansel all for herself, she'd have to get rid of her love rival for good. At her home one evening, not long after this had happened, Renee broke down in tears one night and poured out her problems to her 16-year-old son, Roy. In a familiar ruse to her, Renee came out with a story of how she'd been raped by a man who had been ordered to do so, Renee claimed, by Jeanette Marshall. She gave a vivid and detailed story about the attack and claimed that it had been orchestrated by a vengeful Jeanette who was seethingly jealous about Renee's friendship with Ansel. Roy was absolutely appalled when he heard this story and he believed his mother and he was in agreement with her when she told him we have to pay her back for what she's done. Renee kept repeating to Roy how awful it had been and that no one should be allowed to get away with it and soon a clever manipulation of his son's emotions had worked him up into a hatred of Jeanette Marshall. Roy wanted nothing more than to go round to the Marshall's house and get revenge or justice as he classed it for his mum and of course this was all a fabrication. Pretty twisted and callous that isn't it? On the 28th of April 1991, Ansel received a telephone call at his takeaway from René, who had pleaded with him to visit her before he went home for the evening at about 11pm. She was most insistent that he had to go there to see her, perhaps the most pushy and insistent that she'd been in the six years that he'd known her. And this bothered Ansel, understandably, so he refused and instead went straight home. The house was in pitch darkness by the time he arrived back there and opening the door it was eerily quiet. Normally Jeanette would be up watching television, or at least a light would be left on for him. Going into the sitting room, Ansel switched on the light, and was greeted with a horrific sight. Lying on the floor, partially covered by a blanket, was the lifeless body of Jeanette. She was covered in blood, and Ansel, understandably horrified, felt for a pulse, but found nothing. His thoughts then turned to his children and he went up to check on his four daughters and found them all upstairs asleep. He gathered them up, then went outside and rang police on his mobile phone. The letter had been right. It was four days before the youngest Marshall daughter's first birthday. And that was just the beginning of Ansel's nightmare, if you can believe that. Police arrived and found that Jeanette had suffered a horrendously violent attack. She'd been strangled, beaten and stabbed no less than 15 times. The living room was saturated with blood and there was no sign of a forced entry to the house, making it seem that Jeanette had either known her killer or had unwittingly invited them into the house. 
Yet for reasons unclear, and these have never been satisfactorily revealed, Ansel himself was arrested on suspicion of his wife's murder. He was charged and was to spend ten months in custody on remand before appearing at the Old Bailey for trial in February 1992. He was even refused permission to attend Jeanette's funeral as he was in custody. At his trial, he was released halfway through the hearing when the judge, Mr Justice Lowry, ruled that there was no case for him to answer. Ansel had lost his wife and nearly a year of his life when his children would have needed him the most and questions have to be asked about how the case was ever allowed to get to charge, let alone go to trial. Some serious questions there about what sounds like a shameful and very flawed investigation. So following this, a second inquiry began, and a fresh police investigation, led by Detective Superintendent Gavin Robertson, was soon to uncover the depths of the obsession for Ansel that was held by Renee Sampat, as well as evidence that pointed to her hand in Jeanette's murder, and both she and her son Roy were arrested and charged with her murder. Now the entire story about the false rape allegations, the sexual innuendo and the suggestive behaviour of Renee towards Ansel all came out now, along with the poison pen letters on which Renee's fingerprints and traces of her DNA were found. A set of keys were found in Renee's flat that were copies of the keys to the Marshall home. About two years before, a set had gone missing for a period of a few days and it was thought at the time that one of the Marshall children had misplaced and then found them. What had really happened was that Renee had taken a set one Sunday afternoon after church. When she was at the house, she'd had a copy made and had then replaced them, so she could come and go to Ansel's flat whenever he and Jeanette were not there. On the night of April the 28th, 1991, Renee had wound Roy up about getting justice for her, to the point where he'd taken the keys and used them to silently enter the Marshall house and had then attacked and murdered Jeanette in her own living room. With Jeanette dead, in Renee's mind, Ansel would now be hers and she'd manipulated her own son into doing it for her. Mother of the year there or what, eh? At her trial for the murder of Jeanette Marshall, again at the Old Bailey in February 1994, the jury then heard the whole story of Renee's obsession with Ansel. Before they retired to consider their verdict, prosecuting counsel Nigel Sweeney QC said of Renee, summing up, she was the person with the motive to set it up. She was infatuated with Ansel and tried in various ways over a number of years to win him over without success. She determined that Jeanette Marshall should be murdered so that Ansel could be hers. Renee Sampat's QC, Graham Bowl, retorted with, She is a woman who was obsessed to a point that could be described as mentally abnormal. You may think that it's been realistically described as a fatal attraction, and you may think it can also be described as a fatal obsession. It didn't take the jury very long to reach a unanimous verdict of guilty, to which Ansel Marshall, watching in the public gallery, closed his eyes and simply whispered, Amen. Rene Sampat stood in front of Mr Justice Richard as she was sentenced to the mandatory sentence of life imprisonment, with her son having been tried and convicted earlier and sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. As Renee was taken down to the cells, she shouted out to the court, I am not guilty of murder, I am guilty of love. 
I think you're guiltier of being absolutely bananas there, love. Following the verdict, Ansel showed that his faith remarkably hadn't been shaken by his wrongful imprisonment as he said outside court, I am elated and satisfied that justice has been done. It won't bring my wife back, but it was necessary that those who committed this evil act on my wife should have been brought to justice. I feel that to a certain extent, it was necessary for me to have been treated in that manner almost as a scapegoat, in order that the real person or persons responsible should be brought to justice. My prayers have been answered and I knew God would vindicate me over the horrible and nasty smear that has been said about me. Renée Sampat is a very, very evil woman. She is demonic and wicked. She is referred to an obsession, but I can only sum it up as saying that she's been used by the devil. I often wonder why our family had to suffer this, but we're in God's hands and he must have had a reason to allow it. Detective Chief Superintendent Robertson, who'd led the second inquiry, said, I accept aspects of the first inquiry were wrong, and we tried to right that wrong. We are big enough to accept that a mistake was made, and to get on with setting it right. The sort of woman who can plan the death of a mother of four who had never done her any harm, and use her own 16-year-old son to do it, is beyond words. Ansel Marshall took legal action for his wrongful arrest and he was awarded an undisclosed sum of compensation following the trial. He was then left to pick up the pieces of his life, reunited with his daughters, 13-year-old Charlene, 11-year-old Naomi, 7-year-old Stacy and 3-year-old Rebecca. Now during research for this episode, I was unable to determine as to whether Renee Sampat remains in prison today, but due to the passage of time since her conviction, She's most likely now released. It's not reported as to any minimum tariff that was set, but as the average UK lifer who's not on a whole life tariff serves around 15 years, so this would point to her long since being released. Now I would have thought that a secure mental hospital would have been much more beneficial to her anyway really. Clearly some help was needed there, wasn't it? Isn't that a crazy story indeed? I mean, I know people can become infatuated with others, and most people do in their life meet that one person that they can't be without and that they love to the point of devotion. But that's a healthy obsession. When it clearly isn't reciprocated, then you have to move on, however hard it may be, and just walk away. Yet some people just can't do that, can they? They can't let a person out from under their skin, and sometimes it boils over onto horror such as this. So was Rene more bad or mad, do you think? It's easy to dismiss her as not having a proper grip on reality, and to an extent she didn't, did she, clearly, but yet she was manipulative and calculating enough to get her own son, as I said, mother of the year candidate, if I've ever seen one, to get her own son so wound up through her deliberate lies to him that he went and horrifically murdered a mother of four in her own home. And what could Renee have gained realistically from Jeanette's death? If you've just lost your wife and lover and the mother of your four children, then you aren't going to immediately run off holding hands with some nutcase to make it better, are you? I'm in no way apportioning any blame to Ansel for the actions of Renee Sampat, but it is clear to me that he probably should have stepped in at a point much earlier and had a firm word with her, distanced himself as much as he possibly could from her, and even complained to police if it was necessary about Renee. 
Instead, he seemed to want to leave it all up to God or to have a quiet life and bury his head instead, thinking what will be will be or it would all blow over. And then look what happened. What an absolutely tragic story. And it doesn't get much lighter with the next tale this week. Be warned, it's a tale that takes place in rural Wales, but it has roots that head back many years before and across Europe to where a shameful part of history took place, the atrocities of Nazi Germany. The house was a simple bungalow, nothing too elaborate and not much character, set back off the road in the tiny hamlet of Pantperthog near Macunthleth, which is a small market town in the Welsh county of Powys. From the front, the house looked a grey and drab structure, but to the rear, the setting it was in was like something off a jigsaw or a calendar. Mid Wales has really got some beautiful areas, and this one on the banks of the River Dovey was no exception with its greenery and its rolling hills. It's the type of scene that people would come from far and wide to draw. And in the mid-1950s, the unnamed bungalow had become home to the Chantler family, Alan, Wanda and their two sons, when they bought a plot of land there. They'd proper fallen for the area after both of the Chantlers wished for a quiet place to settle, and they'd together designed and built the bungalow, which for the next 20 years provided them a happy, quiet existence there, raising their two sons in what became a sanctuary to them. When the sons had grown up, the Chantlers made the decision to sell the bungalow and to head off to Australia to be with one of their sons. After living for so long in their rural existence in Pantperthog, they'd lost touch with the outside world to an extent, and it must have been a brave decision to make a fresh start so late in life. But in 1976, that's exactly what they did. They sold up, emigrated, and for a couple of years they tried to do just this, start a new life. But the Chandlers just couldn't settle in Australia. They felt like a fish out of water there, but especially 57-year-old Wanda who found that she had little in common with Australians. It wasn't that Wanda wasn't an intelligent woman. Indeed, she was a fully qualified physiotherapist and could speak nine different languages. But as Wanda was always on her guard due to her intense and introverted nature, she just couldn't fit in with the naturally open and warm people of Australia. Alan felt uncomfortable there also, and he struggled to settle, but it was Wanda out of the two who was most desperate to go home to Mid Wales. She went on often about how she would love to indulge in her favourite pastime that she'd done back home, watercolour painting, and how she longed to once again paint the beautiful scenery of Pantperthog. Both thought about it, and realised that now their sons were grown, there was no need for them to try to make a new start in the outside world that they felt detached from, and by the late 1970s, Wanda and Alan decided to leave Australia and return back home to Mid Wales. They were delighted upon their return to Pantperthog to see that nothing, not the people, not the scenery, nor the way of life in the area, had altered in any way. They were welcomed back by their old neighbours and people they knew from the area, and both felt that this was definitely where they were meant to be. But for Wanda, there was still one thing missing from their return. She longed to have the family bungalow back due to the memories that it held for them. She'd kept telling her husband that much as they made their way back home. Whilst Alan was keen also, he feared that it may not be as easy as said just getting a bungalow back like that. 
but he couldn't dissuade Wander about this. It became her absolute dream. Now when they demigrated, the Chantlers had sold their bungalow to a couple, Roger and Josie Hartland, and the Hartlands had instantly felt about the bungalow and the area, how the Chantlers had so many years before. Like them, they loved the area, and they shared the Chantlers' taste in decor. Roger had been an industrial chemist for many years before taking early retirement, and the Hartland family had longed for a growing while to escape the rat race of the Midlands where they'd lived. Again, much like the Chantlers had many years before, they too found Pantperthog to be the perfect location. The setting was perfect, the bungalow was perfect, and while they fully appreciated just how loved it had been and what a perfect home it was, they could equally appreciate just how hard it must have been for the Chantlers to leave. The Hartlands reassured them that the new life would be just that, a wonderful opportunity. They even waved them off and then got on with life in their new home presuming that that would be the last that they ever saw of the Chantlers. So when Wanda appeared one day on their doorstep about three years later in 1979, they were a bit surprised. They were of course genuinely sorry to hear that their move hadn't worked out as they thought it may, but they were even more taken aback when Wanda came out in all serious with asking them to sell the bungalow back to the Chantlers. To say they were stunned would be a bit more like it. The Hartlands could understand completely the sentiments behind this, knowing the love that Wanda had had for the place. But it was their home now, and they were equally as happy, and they were going nowhere. So the Hartlands firmly but not unkindly told Wanda this, and the obvious disappointment that Wanda showed when she was told left the impression that she really had set her heart completely in hope of returning to a dream home. Now most people would have respected their decision, because there isn't really anything not to respect with this, is there? But Wanda just couldn't. She had to have the bungalow back, no matter what, for in her mind, it was the only place that she could be safe and lead a normal life. It really was a mental, as well as physical sanctuary, and there was a reason for this. Wanda had been born in Russia in 1922 and by age 17 the bright and talented girl had moved to Berlin to study law. The first few months there were an eye-opener for a girl at such a young age away from home, in what seemed to be such a busy place, but Wanda always had plenty of attention as she was an especially attractive girl, and the attention she received made sure she overcame any problems with this. She had the experience of a lifetime there and considered nothing more than studying there for three years after which she could return home to Russia as a qualified lawyer. But of course, war broke out in 1939 and one day Wanda found herself rounded up with several others for reasons that she didn't understand. She was taken away for questioning, being asked things such as her name, age, qualifications, spoken languages, family history and her father's profession. It was mentally exhausting, and the questioning stretched from hours into days. Eventually it dawned on the frightened and confused young woman that their captors had something in mind for her, and before long she was taken to a prison. Well, it was more of a farm than a prison, really. Filled with young adults, mostly female, it was a more relatively free regime than where she'd just been questioned. But as soon as she got there, she noticed the blank looks of fear and misery on the faces of the others all girls, and all with a certain attractiveness about them, be it good figures, striking looks, or well-defined bone structure. 
there also seemed to be many doctors or nurses about the place. Wanda was subjected to a physical examination just after arrival that was unlike anything she'd ever experienced before. She was probed and examined everywhere and with a level of clinical inquisitiveness that she'd never before experienced. The general health was checked, the strength and fitness were checked and still Wanda was unsure exactly why she was there and for what purpose all of these tests and examinations served. Wanda wasn't to know that anyone failing these first medicals was to board another train for another camp. I'm sure that I don't need to spell out exactly where really, do I? Then one morning after she'd been there for a period of a few weeks, well fed and kept but again subject to constant and numerous tests, Wanda was ordered to see the camp's chief physician. When she got to his office, standing next to him was a tall, well-built, blonde-haired German man. Nothing was said at first to her, she just silently stood on the spot while the doctor and the German looked her up and down. Then finally the German said just three words, and it was with those three words that Wanda finally realised where she'd been brought and for what purpose. The German said, She is perfect. Wanda was taken into an adjoining room, in the corner of which was a mattress. She was made to strip, and was then forced into sex with the German. This began a cycle that she was forced to undergo for many years, before being liberated at the end of the war. The sex farm was part of the Nazis' Lebensborn program, which translates as Fount of Life, and was part of a program aimed at creating a super race. Hitler's belief of creating the perfect baby for the perfect race. Now the atrocities that the Nazis' evil regime performed we could be here all night discussing, and undoubtedly living through something like that would leave scars on anyone who had. Who knows exactly the full extent of the horrors that Wanda faced while she was there, but she survived it, and it was during her liberation that she met Alan Chandler, who she went on to marry and have a life and family with. She of course never forgot what had happened for a second throughout her life, but she never spoke much about what had happened there either, instead bottling it all up. It made her think that the outside world was evil, and she couldn't really settle or relax wherever she was, always on her guard, until she and Alan had chosen the tiny community of Pantperthog to settle in. Happy and settled there, Wanda learned to gain some control over the feelings and horrific memories that she had, safe in her sanctuary. In fact, it became everything to her. And now, all of the bad memories she'd spent years learning to live with had come flooding back, and Wanda was consumed with anger. In her mind, the Heartlands were standing in her way of happiness, and Wanda believed that she'd been punished enough in her life already without them punishing her any more. In her mind, Roger and Josie Hartland had become synonymous with the Nazis that had put her through such unspeakable suffering so many years before. Now this of course worried Alan greatly. He could see her obsession growing, an obsession which he didn't share. He was quite accepting of the Hartlands' perfect right to refuse to sell back their bungalow to them. He tried to explain to Wanda that they were fine living where they were in nearby Garth Owen, that it was the area that was important and the house was just that, a house doesn't make a home. 
but nowhere except that bungalow would do for Wanda. It wasn't the same where she was. She thought it was less private and it was too built up and her beloved countryside just didn't look quite the same. Wanda decided that the Heartlands would have to suffer for the torture they were now inflicting upon her. Wanda first went and joined the local gun club in Aberystwyth and she stood out here among the genuine gun enthusiasts and farmers that were primarily the normal clientele of the club. But she attended the club so much and took it so seriously though that soon she was accepted and before long she became an experienced gun handler with a reputation at the club as a very fine shot. It soon became practically the only place that she left the house to go to. When not shooting, she spent the rest of the time sat in their new house in Garth Owen, brooding about the Heartlands. Wanda began turning up constantly at their bungalow to plead with them to sell, and writing venomous and threatening letters addressed to the Heartlands, each becoming more elaborate and sinister, which then began mentioning a hidden treasure that had been left under the bath. Wanda had by now, in her rapidly declining health and mental state, convinced herself that she'd left an assortment of gold items hidden under the bath panel, and the Heartlands were keeping it from her. Time and again she asked them for it in person and by letter, and they kept telling her that it didn't exist, and it was a figment of her imagination. But Wanda couldn't see this, and the letters and visits continued. She also now began writing to the local newspaper, slandering the Heartlands, and this had such an effect upon them, but Roger Hartland was forced to turn to the police. As I said before, very upsetting too. If anyone has ever received a threatening letter, you know just how upsetting it is. So I can only imagine what a campaign must be like. It must be terrible. Police were sympathetic to the Hartlands, but they ultimately felt that there was little they could do except go and speak to Wanda, which they did, and for a while the letters ceased. Police were of the opinion that although she had clear mental issues, she had no intention of carrying out any of the wild threats that were contained in the letters. Things like that just didn't happen in rural Wales, and police told the Heartlands to report any further problems that they had with Wanda to them. Alan, by this time, was well aware that Wanda was on the verge of having a nervous breakdown, and he had an instinct that she was a bit of a ticking time bomb. She'd threatened the Heartlands through letter, in person, and had tried to intimidate them into selling them the house, and the only time she would now leave the house was to either do this, or to go shooting at the club. Feeling that this was a tragedy waiting to happen, Alan went to police and got his wife's shotgun license revoked. But it was to do no good, because on the morning of Monday June 16th 1980, Wanda Chandler finally lost her fragile grip on reality and plunged into full-blown insanity. That morning, Alan noticed that Wanda was in a better and brighter mood than she had been for many weeks, or she seemed to be. She'd ceased the letter-writing, and whilst the treasure under the bath was still a frequent topic of conversation from her, it now wasn't as frequent. He was so buoyed by the change that he saw in her that Monday morning that he decided to leave her for a few hours whilst he went to do the shopping. In a rural area, this means a substantial drive to the nearest supermarket and back. As soon as he'd left the house, Wanda rushed to the wardrobe and dressed in typical countrified attire, tweeds and wellies. 
she picked up a watercolour painting of the landscape surrounding the bungalow that she herself had done many years before, and then left the house, locked the door, and got into a car, placing the picture in the boot. She knew instinctively where she was headed, and before long she pulled up about 50 yards away from the entrance to the bungalow, just out of sight of the actual property itself. She turned off the engine, got out of the car, and opened the boot. From inside the boot, Wanda removed a thick leather belt that she placed around her waist, and then she removed two air pistols, which she placed one over each hip. Then she removed the watercolour painting, and then a double-barrel shotgun. Either Wanda had bought another one without the knowledge of her husband, or it had failed to have been removed when a shotgun licence was revoked. She checked that the shotgun was fully loaded, placed extra cartridges into her pocket, and then picked it up with one hand, the painting in the other, and walked up to the front door of the bungalow. Inside the bungalow in Pantperthog that Monday morning, Josie Harland was getting on with the household chores spurred on by the nice weather, as a nice day was few and far between in those parts. She was feeling fantastic. There hadn't been any incidents concerning Wanda for a few weeks now, and both she and Roger believed that they were finally free of torment from her. And then the front doorbell rang. Roger answered the door to find Wanda standing on the doorstep, armed with three guns and a watercolour painting. She handed it to them with a smile on her face and said to them, I have a present for you. It's a painting I did of the area. I thought you would like it. Roger, alarmed by this but trying to stay calm, shut the door and telephoned Alan Chandler. Now bearing in mind the bother that they'd had from her, Roger told Alan to get around there quickly because Wanda was stood on the doorstep armed to the teeth and then he went back to the front door and opened it to tell Wanda that her husband was on his way. It was to be the last thing that Roger Hartland was to ever do for as he opened the door, Wanda shot him in the head at point-blank range. Such was the force of the blast that he was propelled backwards for a number of feet and was dead in the hallway of the bungalow within seconds. Inside, Josie Hartland was fighting desperately for the phone in the kitchen. She dialed 999 and managed to get through, but was told to wait for a police officer to come onto the line. In the seconds that she was left waiting, the line suddenly went dead. Josie turned from the corner of the kitchen in which she'd been cowering to see Wanda stood there, having pulled out the telephone socket. She looked at Josie for a moment, and then shot her twice at close range. Both shots hit Josie full on but didn't kill her, so Wanda calmly reloaded the shotgun, moved closer to her, and shot her in the head at point-blank range. That was it to Wanda, job done. The Nazi regime was crushed, for that's exactly how she saw the Heartlands that day. Complete with uniforms, the sex farm, to Wanda, she was back there. She sat down in the kitchen that she still loved and waited for Alan and the police to arrive. At a trial at Mould Crown Court in October 1980, Wanda Chandler pleaded guilty to the manslaughter of Roger and Josie Hartland and both prosecution and defence accepted that 57-year-old Wanda had become a killer directly as a result of her suffering at the hands of the Nazis. Dr William Lawson a senior remand medical officer, 
testified about his examination of Wanda while she'd been hospitalised awaiting trial, saying, Mrs Chandler is suffering from a depressive illness characterised mainly by delusions. She had delusions about the right of title to the property and about money and valuables hidden there. These had their origins in her wartime experiences. This woman quite rightly feels she betrayed herself and her country when she was in the hands of the SS, who as you know were animals. Her feelings towards her victims were ambivalent. When she's in her proper mind, she is not capable of hating anyone. Defending QC Nigel Fricker told the court, This is one of the saddest stories ever to be told before a court of justice. She was trying to regain the happiness that she'd known in the years that the children were completing their education. Doctors are satisfied that the degradation she endured between the ages of 18 and 23, enslaved by the Nazis, unsettled her more than 40 years later. Wanda's husband Alan wept as he told the court about Wanda. My wife's wartime experiences had a deep effect on her, and sometimes she'd wake up screaming in the night. She never talked much about her ordeal to me, and she never told me if she'd had any babies by German officers. On the 24th of October 1980, Wanda Chandler was sent to Broadmoor Secure Hospital in Berkshire without limit of time. Mr Justice Hodgson was sympathetic towards her, telling her, No one could possibly have heard what we have heard without feelings of great compassion for you. In a sense, you were as much a victim of Nazi Germany as the Heartlands were victims, indirectly, of that same horror. It is a matter of regret that you must be secured away in view of what you've endured, but there is a danger to yourself and others. It's unclear just how long Wanda spent in Broadmoor before being released. I wasn't able to ascertain this when I was researching the case for the episode as there's very, very little available to find out about it. But it's more than likely now that she has long since passed away. If she was still alive, she would be 96 years old by now and would surely have been released due to great age and infirmity. Her husband Alan is most likely passed away also, and both of Wanda's children would now have family themselves, and would now be middle-aged. Again, yet it's another tragic story this one, isn't it? And again, like the story with Ansel and Renee, I feel that this could have been prevented if someone had stepped in sooner. I mean, why did Wanda still have a shotgun, or was allowed to get another one? Why didn't Alan, if he saw his wife was descending into severe mental illness, not get her to doctors for assessment or treatment, and should also the police have done more, knowing that this was a woman who was harassing the Heartlands to the point of obsession, and knowing that she had a licensed shotgun. With this story, I was a bit reminded of a case that I covered last year on the show, an early case from the first series entitled One Man's Fatal Obsession, because that episode also concerned an individual with an all-consuming obsession, over a person this time, rather than a structure. The outcome of that case was no less as sad and horrific, however. Perhaps it was more horrific in the case of Kevin Weaver. See what you think if you haven't listened to it. It's available in the show's back catalogue of episodes. One Man's Fatal Obsession. He too was actually sent to Broadmoor in 1987, and he so could have been there at the same time as Wanda Chandler, by a strange coincidence and a strange twist of fate. 
Now, unlike most of the cases that I feature on the show where I vilify the perpetrators, I do have a degree of sympathy with Wanda here. Not for her actions, because they were just horrific, but unless each of us goes through horror such as she did so many years before, then you just can't know how much it will affect someone's mental state. You just can't put yourself in their shoes. It's a whole different level, and you can't know how it must feel to think like that. Regardless, as I said, I do think this could have been stopped, if only it was taken a bit more seriously by authorities, and people close by had stepped in and taken decisive action. I think this can be said for both of the cases that we've featured here today. Do you agree? Who do you blame? I hope that this episode will raise a few talking points, as I feel there have been a few issues raised throughout that may cause discussion, and both cases highlight just how dangerous an obsession can be. However, it's not stemmed, it can lead to mental illness and ultimately tragedy in some cases. I only ever put a short brief out when I do post up the threads in the discussion group online, as I feel that my own opinions are conveyed throughout the episode. Well, that's what I always try to do anyway, and hopefully that comes across. Please feel free to leave your thoughts there on the Facebook discussion group thread. I look forward to reading them and chipping in. I know these have been tragic stories this week, but as I say, find me a jolly crime where we all laugh at the end of it and have a good time, and I shall of course put it out. I strive for the obscure on the show as you know and researching these, these were very obscure believe me. I hope that you've enjoyed the episode regardless and I'll wrap it up here for this week but I shall of course be back next week with another episode that I hope you can join me for then. You can catch me in the meantime using my social media links which are in the episode notes as ever or are always the true crime enthusiast or a slight variation on that. Or you can join me on Patreon or so if you wish to support get yourself some bonus episodes or other goodies that you may want, I best shoot off and crack on with the next one now. So I have been, I still am, and still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all happy and safe times, and I shall speak to you soon. Take care all, thanks very much for joining me, and goodbye for now.